the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Uh, thanks for your patience, friends. Uh, you plan and life laughs. That's certainly what it feels like right now. Um, but today's episode is so good. Pulmonary hypertension part two. So we're building from the first episode released a year or two ago featuring Brian Murray. And our guest today is Zach Smith, ICU pharmacist from Detroit, Michigan. And we cover everything of how, what you do in the critically ill, how to diagnose and classify pulmonary hypertension, a discussion and we have a discussion on the overview of treatment before we dive into specific medication classes, patient specific considerations, the role of the ICU pharmacist, management of the critically ill patient with RV or right ventricular failure, uh, tips and tricks for uh, when patients have home parenteral agents, and much, much more. October's ending, but the treats keep coming on Pharmacy to Dose because our new episode starts right now. And today's guest is none other than Zach Smith. Now, Zach is a critical care and pulmonary hypertension clinical pharmacy specialist at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and a new fellow of ACCP. So he'll be awarded at the annual meeting. Huge congrats there. That's awesome. Uh, find him on Twitter at ZRSmith16. Zach, thanks for joining us today. How are things going up in the Motor City? It's going pretty good. It's cooling off a little bit, starting to get that fall weather. But thanks for having me on the show today, Nick. I got to ask, I, uh, I'm i a pizza guy, and I was exposed to Detroit pizza recently a couple months ago, and I'm in. I, I think it's so good. So give give myself and the listeners a tip. What's your, what's your go-to? What's your favorite Detroit pizza spot in kind of your local Michigan area? I think if you're going like classic old school Detroit pizza, one of the restaurants that is kind of a, uh, I guess I, I would say unique to Detroit is Buddy's Pizza. So they kind of have more of a deep dish square type pizza and they put the sauce on the top. So they put the cheese on the bottom and then the sauce on the top. Um, some people like it. Some people don't. If you're looking for something unique. And then I, two others that I really like are Jets Pizza, which originated in uh, Detroit, and then uh, Green Lantern Pizza. And the one that I is my favorite, I, you can't go wrong with any of those three, but I, I personally like the Green Lantern Pizza the best in, in Michigan. That's how you know you have an amazing selection when you couldn't even narrow it down to one. You had to shout out. You had to get you had to get the top three out because I'm sure the list is is crazy long. So love that. Um, now for the listeners, so we've had a more general overview on pulmonary hypertension in the past that was featuring Brian Murray from the University of North Carolina. But on this part two episode, we're going to focus a little more on the management in the critically ill. So there might be some overlap as we talk about pharmacotherapy or things. But 
but we're going to kind of focus on what happens when these patients come into your ICU. And Zach, as we kind of start as like more of an intro overview, why is caring for critically ill patients with pulmonary hypertension so challenging? Why does it give us anxiety when they, when they kind of acutely present into your ER ICU? Yeah, I think, you know, I thought about this question for some time. I think, you know, looking back at my own training pathway, it's not always a disease. I think it's definitely getting more attention now than it did 10 years ago. But in our therapeutics class, this is one that we kind of taught ourselves. And I think the drug therapy has changed quite considerably over the past 10 years. Um, You know, anytime you have a rare disease state, it's always going to be a disease that people are less familiar with. Anywhere from one to 50 patients are affected per million, so pretty rare disease. And then as an ICU practitioner, it's not common that you're managing a condition with almost exclusively specialty medicine. So these specialty medicines have all the REMS programs. They use these complex uh, uh, ambulatory infusion devices to administer them. Um, and then the long-term parenteral drugs. And then I think just the whole management of right ventricular failure, which is a common uh, thing you're managing in the ICU with this population, it's a disease state that doesn't have a ton of evidence to guide, you know, which pharmacotherapy should be used other than just general supportive care measures. Um, so I think putting all those things together and then I, uh, high alert medicine, so ipoprostenol is rec- recommended at, or recognized as a high alert medicine. So I think putting all those things together I think is one of the things that, you know, brings a challenge when, when managing this population. I think that's a really good point you mentioned about the specifically the specialty medicines because you're getting out of your comfort zone. All the things that you kind of acutely know what to do if things get challenging, you can't necessarily do in these patients or you can't use those agents. And we'll, we'll get to some of that, but that's a really, that's a really good point. Um, now, when we're thinking about the the overview, how exactly is pulmonary hypertension even diagnosed? Like what are lab or hemodynamic or even other values or parameters that confirm this diagnosis? Yeah, I think that one of the best ways uh, was explained to me, or I heard uh, one of our pulmonary hypertension critical care pulmonologists talk about this is it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So I really like explaining it that way. So really it's a rare disease. So the pathway to diagnosis is essentially ruling out all the more common etiologies. So in terms of your laboratory work, you're going to be looking at, you know, BNP levels. You're going to be getting uh, the cardiology workup in terms, in terms of a transthoracic echo. Um, ECG can be valuable looking at right ventricular hypertrophy, pulmonary function tests to assess for any underlying lung pathology. Uh, and then depending on patient specific factors, sleep studies, for obstructive sleep apnea, uh, VQ scan to rule out any thromboembolic disease, and then lung CT if they have any chronic lung diseases to assess for you know how proportionate their lung disease is contributing to their their pulmonary hypertension, and then other labs such as you know seeing if the patient has any connective tissue disease orders, uh, autoimmune disorders, ruling out HIV, um, and then once you get through all of those items, the the conf- the test or assessment that's done to confirm the disease is right heart cath. So through that process, you're essentially ruling out all these more common conditions. And then if a patient makes it through all those without having uh, any of the more common diseases, then you, you ultimately get to undergo a more, the most invasive of those procedures, which is the right heart cath. 
And I think that's uh, important. I like to point out that that's not necessarily something, this isn't like an MI or something like that where we're going to just acutely diagnose it when they present to you know your ICU if this isn't already pre-existing. They can have things that make you suspicious of it and we treat with it, but, but a lot of those things we can't necessarily do in the acute side per se, especially when they're critically ill. So I like always kind of pointing that out and especially the diagnosis of exclusion. And we talked about this in the Hef Pef episode with Dave Dixon that when you, you know, when you have dyspnea or that shortness of breath, the the amount of overlapping conditions and things um, can be pretty wide. So the diagnosis of exclusion kind of makes complete sense there. Um, now, when classifying pulmonary hypertension, when you look in literature guidelines and things, there are five different groups or um, clinical classification. My question is, when these patients are in the ICU, is the management the same, right? Do we think of all of these five groups generally as pulmonary hypertension? Do we follow those same principles for all? Yeah, I think there's going to be some commonalities between all of the five groups. And then really, when you say pulmonary hypertension, it's kind of a broad term that encompasses all five groups, right? And then a lot of times when we hear the term pulmonary hypertension, you think pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is group one disease. So that's the rarest that we've kind of focused on for diagnosis, but there's going to be a lot of similar management strategies, mainly with uh, uh, diuresis, fluid management, and then inotropes and vasopressors, um, treating the underlying condition if it's a non-group one disease state, and then there's targeted pharmacotherapies for group one, uh, three, and four if you move down that diagnostic pathway. And that's a that's a good point that you know we may bring in other other groups to talk about, but the primary focus, especially for this episode when we're talking about it, we're talking about that that group one, the pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, so, Zach, what's the difference between their clinical classification or group and their functional classification? Yeah, so when you look at their clinical classification, you know you start to break down underlying etiology of the pulmonary hypertension. So like we said, group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, it's a true vasculopathy of the arterial pulmonary arteries. So you have hypertension in the lungs, essentially. Um, When you look at group two, that's going to be pulmonary hypertension secondary to left heart disease or valvular diseases. Group three is going to be secondary to lung diseases. So this kind of runs the gamut of COPD, emphysema, obstructive sleep apnea, some other less common pulmonary conditions. Group four is going to be chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So this is pH secondary to uh, clot. And then group five is really a mixed where they don't fit into any of the other classifications. And you have um, diseases like chronic kidney disease that's lumped into that uh, group five disorder. And then ultimately, you can break down those five groups by if there's precapillary disease, precapillary meaning it's arterial disease or postcapillary disease. So, precapillary disease is going to encompass group one, three, and four, and then some of group five. And then, postcapillary disease, that's going to be the pre- and post-capillary terminology is really referring to where the pressure is or where the elevated pressure is arising from. So post-capillary disease is, is going to be something that would be seen in group two pulmonary hypertension. So kind of knowing pre- and post-capillary, those 
different diagnostic terms or uh, tests that we talked about, like looking at the CT scan, you might have a right heart cath that shows uh, hemodynamics consistent with pulmonary arterial hypertension, but then you have to look at the CT to see if their COPD or emphysema is ultimately driving that condition. So that's where those other uh, diagnostic tests come into play when you're making a confirmation diagnosis if it's true group one or secondary to like group three or four disease, if you have precapillary. So that's kind of the clinical classification. In terms of functional class, this is really how a patient feels. So it, the functional class is very similar to the New York Heart Association. This is the WHO functional class for pulmonary arterial hypertension. So it ranges from one to four, one being asymptomatic, four being essentially bedridden, uh, and then two is able to carry out day daily activities with slight limitations, and three is able to carry out daily activities with significant limitations. So the clinical classification kind of determines the etiology and where the elevated pressures are arising from, and then the functional class is to characterize this, you know, how a patient is doing living their life. Now, what are some hemodynamic parameters that we might want to cover or the listeners should be, should be familiar with before we dive into some of the specific care of pulmonary hypertension patients? Yeah, I think a lot of our, of these are going to be, um, you know, items that the audience is going to be familiar with, uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, cardiac output and cardiac index, pulmonary vascular resistance. And I, one hemodynamic variable that I think has a big role in this population and maybe not as much in other critically ill populations with you know, current evidence is using a right atrial pressure or a central venous pressure. So that has uh, quite a bit of utility in this population compared to our other critically ill populations. Um, so I think those are going to be some of the important ones. And then when we talk more about the transthoracic echo, there's some other variables that you'll want to be looking at to assess right heart function there as well. Yeah, and I think uh, pointing out, um, especially for the learners, right, I think the the CVP they may be familiar with is using it to predict fluid responsiveness. And we'll we'll talk about the CVP here, but we're using it um, a little differently in our pulmonary hypertension patients. Um, now let's kind of get generally into our kind of management and we'll get into more specific situations, nuances and cover the individual classes. But like with ACS or sepsis, we have a general algorithm or treatment approach to these patients. Is there a similar approach for the management of pulmonary hypertension? Um, I think when you look at the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension, I always like to compare it to heart failure because heart failure has over 50 years of randomized controlled trial data. And when you look at pulmonary arterial hypertension, the clinical trial data really started in the in the 90s. So we're just, you know, we're not as far along and we're just starting to answer some of the questions as the, or the pH community is starting, starting to answer some of the questions of, you know, do you start with one drug, two drugs, three drugs? So I think the evidence is coming a, a ways. Um, but when you look at a recommended treatment approach, the societies from United States, like CHEST, they haven't, uh, their last publication on, on management was 2019. The European Society of Cardiology usually publishes their guidelines every other year to every year. Their, the last update was uh, published in 2022. So 
the European Society of Cardiology has a, a guideline that was put out um, that is pretty comprehensive, and then it doesn't include a treatment pathway based on the best available evidence. So starting at what functional classification do we consider starting pharmacotherapy, right? Because you talked about it's their symptoms, and you go from class one, which is you know, no real symptoms, up to class four, right, our most severe symptoms at rest. Yeah, I think one of the ways to think of treatment is ultimately there's a risk assessment that's done for these patients that have pulmonary hypertension, and specifically pulmonary arterial hypertension group one. And this risk assessment essentially is built on one-year mortality rate. So there's three classifications for patients. One is low risk, so that's less than 5% mortality rate at one year. Intermediate risk is 5 to 20% mortality. And then high risk is greater than 20%. So there's a host of both labs, assessments, and hemodynamic parameters that go into classifying someone as low, intermediate, and high risk. One of those things is functional class. So if you're functional class four, you fall into the high risk. If you're two or three, you're in the intermediate. And if you're functional class one, you fall into low risk. Other variables are items from your right heart cath, cardiac index and output. There's BNP levels. There are six minute walk distance on that parameter. Presence of syncope is on there as well. So really the, the physician caring for the patient is going to perform this kind of holistic assessment of the patient and then risk stratify them if they fall into low, intermediate, and high risk. And that classification is ultimately what drives pharmacotherapy. Someone that is in high risk is going to get certain recommendations based on the evidence that's available. And then patients that are in the low and intermediate risk are going to get a separate recommendation for pharmacotherapy. So ultimately starting there is a good way to kind of uh, think of this disease state and assessing, you know, what patient should you, what pharmacotherapy should your patient be initiated on based on their, their risk assessment. So you're mentioning that a lot of these are um, patient specific kind of decisions. What are, what are some patient specific factors to consider with deciding which therapies or if to start therapy? Like what are some of those patient specific factors that, that are considered? Yeah, I, I like to think of this population when you select treatments is you'll have what the evidence is going to tell you to start and then you have a lot of um, patient-specific factors like for some drugs they have to have a second caregiver or a family member that's trained on how to operate and infuse these drugs, how to prepare them. They have to undergo monthly pregnancy tests for female patients, uh, coordination and shipping of these drugs, the complexity of the oral regimen. So I think when uh, you're selecting pharmacotherapy, it's what's recommended by the most recent European study cardi cardiology guidelines is if you're low or intermediate risk, you should be starting combination initial therapy with imbrisentin and Tadalafil or macetentin and Tadalafil. So that's the a high level recommendation based on strong evidence that any new diagnosis should be started on that combination. And then if you're high risk, those patients should be started on upfront oral combination with the same drugs, and then considerate initiation of parenteral therapy as well. So this could be intravenous epoprostenol, intravenous triprostenol, or subcutaneous triprostenol. That it doesn't have as strong of an uh, evidence base for it, but if you're, if you're 
classified as high risk, a parenteral prostacyclin is certainly a drug that you are going to be assessing for initiation in your patient. So once you've selected what drugs are ideal based on the evidence, that's when it, you have the conversation or the team has the conversation with the patient. You know, this is what this treatment would look like. You know, the parenteral therapies, these are lifelong therapies that are infused continuously 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have to prepare these drugs at home. Um, it impacts their ability uh, to take showers and they can't go swimming. So there's a lot of impacts on quality of life. So those are some of the things that get, you know, discussed with the patient. Uh, enrollment in REMS for certain drugs, and then affordability is a big thing with these drugs. So if they can afford the co-pays, if they have insurance, if they're eligible for prescription assistance programming, uh, grant foundation funding. So those are a lot of the things that go on during that initial conversation uh, with the patient. So this next question, I think, is something that will come up on rounds sometimes when you might have a patient that gets acutely hospitalized for, you know, maybe a worsening or exacerbation of their pulmonary hypertension. So when have patients considered to have failed a treatment? Like at what point, you know, how long do you give them before it's determined that they, they have a lack of response to a specific agent? Yeah, the recommended follow-up duration is three to six months after you initiate or modify a therapy. So I think there, you know, there's an assessment. One was the patient taking the medicines, just like any other, you know, uh, disease state. If the patients were compliant and taking the medicines, was it an issue of them having dietary indiscretion and maybe they weren't compliant or able to keep the food restrictions or the, the diet restrictions? And then you'll have patients that were doing all of those things and they just need a uh, more intensive treatment regimen. So you're looking at changing one of the current drugs they're on or adding a second or third option on. Um, so I think you, you ultimately you go back to that risk assessment, so that low, intermediate, and high risk. And the goal for all patients is get to get them to low risk. So anytime you're assessing the pharmacotherapy, you, you know, you go through the compliance, the dietary and lifestyle things, and then if they're meeting their low, intermediate, or high risk where they're falling, and if they're not meeting the low risk, that's really a, a, a indication to be more aggressive with the pharmacotherapy. And if you have a patient that's doing all those things and they were diagnosed early on, and it's a month later and they're in ICU, you're probably going to be being more aggressive at that point as well. So there's always uh, opportunities to be more aggressive earlier, but the three-month is kind of the longest time period you might wait in an ideal setting. So as we get into these individual agents, and you kind of hinted at this a little bit earlier, but do we think these agents have a class effect or do we think, do we need to think of the individual agents kind of like we do with HEFREF and our beta blockers, for example? I think it's really a scenario where given the course of time with these drugs and randomized controlled trials that have been done, some of the agents that are older, like Bocentin as an example, it's really hard to say if that drug would have the same effects as Ambercentin or Massitentin um, because both of those drugs have RCTs either with a combination or as a monotherapy that showed not just a six-minute walk improvement, but clinical outcome surrogate measure endpoint improvement. So I think most would categorize these drugs as drug-specific effects, and you wouldn't necessarily, 
extrapolate the data from Massey Tenton or Ambersen to Bosen as an example. And same thing with Tadalafil and Sildenafil. Tadalafil is the date drug that has from the PD5 inhibitor class the strongest clinical trial data. So I think most would consider it a specific drug effect because there's no RCTs to support the other agents. So let's kind of get into the actual pharmacotherapy, talk about some of these agents and classes, and let's start with the oral medication classes. We'll kind of work our way into our parenteral, and let's start with our calcium channel blockers. And um, one of the things when you look at the use of calcium channel blockers in pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, it ta- the the guidelines and text re- have a vasoreactive testing recommendation that patients have to undergo before starting these agents. So what is that? Yeah, so the vasoreactivity test is something that's done during the right heart catheterization procedure. So uh, during the right heart catheterization, the interventionalist will measure your all your hemodynamic parameters and if your patient is meeting the criteria for pulmonary arterial hypertension, you would only do this in a patient that had group 1 PAH. You wouldn't do this in the other groups. If your patient had group 1 PAH and their cardiac output or their cardiac index is above 2, an important point, you wouldn't do this test on someone that has a cardiac index less than 2. Essentially, they're going to administer inhaled nitric oxide, inhaled iloprost, or intravenous epoprostenol. And inhaled iloprost and inhaled nitric oxide is currently what's recommended in the guidelines. And ultimately, what you're looking for for a positive is a drop in your mean pulmonary arterial pressure of at least 10 with an absolute reduction in the MPAP or mean pulmonary arterial pressure to less than 40. So it's a drop by 10 to to a value of less than 40. So that's really going to be your positive test. And if you don't meet those parameters, that would be a negative test. If it's a negative test, that means your patient would not be responsive to calcium channel blockers, but you can still use other pH-specific targeted therapies. So just because they're not vasoreactive doesn't mean you can't use the disease state-specific. If they're positive, it means they're somebody that might respond to a calcium channel blocker. So the calcium channel blockers that are used are uh, nifedipine and lodipine are the probably the two most common that are used in the United States. And then diltiazem is also an option. When you look at diltiazem, most pH providers, because of the negati- negative ionotropic effect of the diltiazem, avoid that drug. So you're going to be mostly looking at amlodipine and nifedipine use. And with both of these drugs, it's higher than the FDA-labeled doses for hypertension. So and lodipine, you could use up to 30 milligrams per day. And then nifedipine can be higher, you know, 90 milligrams BID. We've had patients up to 210 milligrams BID. Um, so there's higher doses that are used for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Other than those with HEF-REF, um, due to those negative inotropic effects, are there are there others we avoid this therapy in besides those who obviously don't um, have a positive vasoreactivity test? I think other than the diltiazem that you mentioned, I, I think in the other groups, either amlodipine or um, nifedipine could be drugs that are used if there's concurrent hypertension. But the whole, the vasoreactivity, you wouldn't necessarily be using it for like the group 
two, three, four, or five pulmonary hypertension. It would only be as an adjunct if you needed some additional hypertension control, and there wouldn't be a contraindication to using those drugs. Before they do the right heart cath, vasoreactivity testing, they're really what the what they're looking for, and often they'll be calling the pulmonary arterial uh, physician during this or, or messaging them is commonly what's done. Because sometimes the pH provider will ask for additional testing like fluid ch challenges or, or uh, other uh, management strategies to look at for some different things. But ultimately, what you're looking for to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, so just pulmonary hypertension, is a mean pulmonary arterial pressure greater than 20. So historically, this number has been 25, but at the 2019 uh, World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension, they dropped it to 20. So pulmonary hypertension is an MPAP greater than 20. And then when you're looking at if a patient has group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, they need to have a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than 15 millimeters of mercury. And then a pulmonary vascular resistance or PVR of less than two wood units. That one was also changed this past year in the Europe European Society of Cardiology guidelines. So it dropped from three wood units to two wood units. So if in order to have group one PAH, you have to have a MPAP greater than 20 with a wedge less than 15 and a PVR above two. So that would be your diagnostic criteria for pulmonary arterial hypertension. So when do we consider using monotherapy compared to combination therapy? Because you mentioned um, our first line standard is combination, but sometimes you'll see patients not receiving that treatment. Yeah, I think if you're starting a calcium channel blocker like we talked about, that'd be a scenario where you could use a calcium channel blocker and then reassess their initial response. But really, if you're looking at the evidence-based guidelines, really everyone should be started on upfront combination therapy. And sometimes that's starting, you know, one of these agents and then in four weeks starting the second drug. So you could be in that window where they're in the process of assessing tolerance of the first agent before they add on the second agent. Um, or it becomes a patient-specific factor, like they can't, um, for whatever reason, take both medicines, or they, they're somebody that only want, doesn't like taking medicines, they want to take one and see how they do. So I, I think it's going to be one of those patient-specific factors is really kind of one of the only times you would probably see a, a patient not uh, initiated on upfront combination therapy. So the next kind of two common medication classes are our um, PDE5 inhibitors, right? Our phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors and our ERAs are the endothelin receptor antagonists. So most are going to be most familiar with the PDE5 inhibitors. So let's kind of start with those. And what's our mechanism of action um, of these agents? And how are we going to see them dosed compared to those indications, the dosing for the indications that we're used to seeing, such as like erectile dysfunction, for example? Yeah, so the pulmonary arterial hypertension, there's three main pathways that have been characterized that we're familiar with. Reduction in nitric oxide, uh, increase endothelin, which is a potent vasoconstrictor, and then deficiency in prostacyclin. So those are kind of your three common disease state pathways. The PD5 inhibitors increase nitric oxide in, in the patient. And how, how you're going to be seeing the dosing it, different is Sildenafil, it's dosed three times per day, 20 milligrams, three times a day. Um, some institutions and practitioners, the SUPER-1 trial, which assessed this drug, uh, went up, titrated patients up to 80 milligrams TID, 
and there was some modest improvements in six minute walk distance. So some clinicians do like titrating or so then therapy where I practice at Henry Ford, our pulmonologists really use the 20 milligram TID dose. And then Tadalafil, um, it's gonna be initiated at 20 milligrams daily and then up titrated to 40 milligrams daily. So uh, depending on your practice site, you might see some variation in, in the sildenafil dosing, but Tadalafil, uh, 20 and then 40 milligrams is you you want to get your patient up to the 40 milligram dose for Tadalafil. And then they're going to be scheduled drugs. So I know with and when these drugs are used for erectile dysfunction, they're kind of used PRN or there's a daily option. But with these drugs, it's daily dosing and compliance is, is and taking these agents is very important. So you mentioned that. Um, you know, according to the evidence, Tadalafil is kind of our first line agent. Have these two been compared at all? Is there differences in, in tolerability or guidelines, or is it truly based on that um, data not only showing that it improved your uh, six-minute walk time, but also some of those surrogate functional outcomes as well? Yeah, I think for just from a patient perspective, Tadalafil is going to be once daily dosing. So it's a little bit more, less. it's less complex than a TID dosing. That's a hard regimen to be able to do consistently. So Zenafil is often more inexpensive. So that's one thing that you, you, in a, if you're in a scenario where a patient can't afford the Tadalafil, so Zenafil might be used in that scenario. Um, I'm not aware of any well-done head-to-head comparative trials. You know, with the Tadalafil, the, really the landmark, trial that put it on the, the map as the initial PD-5 inhibitor was the AMBITION trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in combination with Amberson. And then a similar trial was published with massitentin and Tadalafil in pulmonary circulation. So it's really kind of been the option that has just been the drug used in those randomized trials and, and why it's kind of the, the preferred option. Our other class, the endothelin receptor antagonist, right? It targets a, a different one of our targets. So what what's our pathway or mechanism of action for the ERAs? And and out of those kind of common agents, what's the one that we'll most commonly see? I think you hit on it earlier, but let's re reemphasize that one. Yeah, so the three agents in the endothelin receptor antagonist class are bosentin, ambrosentin, and masitentin. And really, these drugs are all going to block endothelium, which is a very potent vasoconstrictor in the pulmonary arterial beds. So they antagonize that potent vasoconstrictor. Um, Ambersen and masitentin are going to be the drugs that you're going to see most common in clinical practice. They All three of these drugs have REMS programs, so it's a consideration for use. They're all teratogens for female patients, so female patients have to do monthly pregnancy testing work with their specialist ph- pharmacy to confirm enrollment and compliance with that. Bostatin also carries a black box warning for hepatotoxicity, so that's a consideration for its use. And, and one of the reasons it's, it's fallen out of favor, it, it is also the only one that's do- dosed twice a day. So Ambersen and Massey-Tenton are both dosed once daily. Um, so the, the most common agents that I see in practice are Ambersentin and Massey-Tenton, and those are both ERAs that are recommended as a first-line option based on the uh, European Society of Cardiology guidelines from, from this past year. 
So thinking about our critically ill patients and sometimes delivering these medicines can be hard to them. So with our ERAs, and we can even bring in our, our PDE5 inhibitors, can these be given if the patient can't take the whole tablet? Like if we, you know, uh, are we able to give this per tube or something like that for those who may be intubated or unable to swallow those whole tablets while they're in the ICU? So Bosun is the only one that has a commercial suspension that's available. So that would be an option um, if your pH team wanted to convert them over. One of the things, the, n- nothing about the drug tablet precludes crushing it. So it's not like an extended release formulation. There, there's no specific drug formulation effect that prevents crushing. Um, because these are teratogens, they're on the NIOSH drug list as potentially hazardous substances. So if they're crushed at the bedside, it exposes your healthcare team, specifically female nurses, to these drugs and it could expose a pregnant patient or a pregnant nurse to, to these teratogens. So that's really the concern. So for that reason, you cannot crush them at the bedside. However, you can crush them and prepare them in central pharmacy. So if these drugs are compounded in central pharmacy and dispensed in a unit dose oral syringe, they can be administered uh, through an NG tube in that fashion. Um, this comes up sometimes when patients are leaving the ICU too that end up being having an enteral feeding tube placed. Of if we can crush these drugs, and we the the PH team talks to the family that these drugs can be crushed and administered, but we just have to discuss the risks to the family members and ensuring there's not a a pregnant family member that is performing those activities. And I, I'm aware some practice sites do prepare these in their central pharmacy and dispense them up to the bedside and the prepared unit dose packaging with the the syringe. Yeah, that's definitely, that feels like when you're at a bigger institution, you're more likely to have that option of having it prepared. And, you know, when I, at the smaller institutions that I've worked at, logistically, that can just be way more challenging. So sometimes you can do it on a one-off, but having that be your reliable go-to is probably less of an option in those. But um, highlighting that, that there is, you know, potentially an alternative suspension and things. Um, the last oral medication class is our guanolate cyclase stimulators, AKA the best name in the pulmonary arterial hypertension class, Ryosiguat. So which patients will we primarily see this agent being used in? Yeah. So the Ryosiguat is going to act in the same nitric oxide pathway. So you would ever use this with a PD-5 inhibitor, be contraindicated. Um, this is the only drug that's FDA approved for group four, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, and someone that's either inoperable, that, meaning they can't undergo a curative procedure, or they've undergone that operation and they're still symptomatic. Um, it's indicated in both of those scenarios to improve six-minute walk distance. Then you could also see it in group one PAH. So there, for a long time, was this thought that Riosigwat has kind of two unique mechanisms of action for increasing nitric oxide, and it was felt that that was would be more beneficial than a PD-5 inhibitor. And there was a trial that was done essentially saying, not comparing Riosigwat to a PD-5 inhibitor, but if you have a patient on a PD-5 inhibitor and they're not meeting your therapeutic endpoint, what happens if you continue them on PD-5 versus switch it to Riosigwat? This was the REPLACE trial was published, uh, I believe, in 2001 or 2021, and it showed improvements in a surrogate clinical endpoint. So 
really the role for resuquat is if you're having someone on a PD-5 inhibitor and you want to be more aggressive about their treatment regimen and their group one, you can swap out the PD-5 inhibitor for resuquat and you might get some additional clinical benefit uh, from doing that for your patient uh, functional class and trying to get them down to that low risk category. Um, it is a little bit more complex, so it's dosed three times a day. The dosing range is 0.5 to 2.5 milligrams TID at 0.5 milligram increments, and it's usually dosed or up titrated every one to two weeks. So it is a little bit more uh, complex in terms of a medication. So as we move into our prostacyclins, I think most of us are familiar with the fact that they can be given parenterally, right? We highlighted IV and sub-Q. How else can this medication class actually be given, though? So there's um, drugs for inhalation route and then oral route. So inhalation, you have inhaled troposinol and then inhaled iloprost. And then for orals, you have oral troposinol and then oral selexapeg. Selexapeg isn't a true prostacyclin analog. It's a IP receptor agonist. So it's a little bit different than the, the true prostacyclins, but it works on the same IPA receptor. So the most common um, agents are triprosinol and epoprosinol. So what are the big difference between these two when they're given parenterally? So in terms of just drug properties, the triprosinol is going to have a longer half-life. So it's about four hours versus epoprosinol is three to five minutes. So if your patient has a complication, it's a lot it's often viewed as a safer option because they have more time to get to the hospital if their pump stops working or their line gets pulled out or, or breaks. Um, Epoprostenol is the only drug that has been shown to reduce mortality in PAH, um, but it you know that was a smaller randomized controlled trial. It was one of the original trials looking at th therapeutics in this disease, but it is the only agent that has that you know sign of mortality benefit from a randomized trial. Um, the other thing is epoprostenol, when looking at your adverse effects, it seems to have more thrombocytopenia associated with its use, although that is pretty rare, but it's not something that's typically seen with triprostenol. Um, and then just from the patient's perspective, they're going to be changing their epoprostenol medication reservoir or cassette every day. So they have to prepare that cassette every day. Whereas triprostenol, if you're doing it IV, it's every other day, and then if it's subcutaneous, it could be every up to three days. So um, just from a patient perspective, it might be more convenient as well using triprostenol. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot, 24 versus 48 hours, but when you think these could be lifelong therapies, that makes a huge, huge difference. And even, even if you're not even thinking from a patient perspective, when they come into the hospital, we'll get to considerations with home pumps and things, but having that extra 24-hour buffer um, certainly helps with a lot of things. Uh, what are, uh, are there any other kind of unique considerations with our parenteral agents compared to oral, knowing that you know we'll get to considerations and things for the pharmacist when they're inpatient, but just generally speaking? Um, I think one of the things with all these drugs is just being a hospital pharmacist. The purchasing of them is typically through a different wholesaler than your hospital contracts with. So you often have to purchase these items through a different wholesaler. 
And the most common that I'm aware of is, is CureScript's pharmacy. So you have to kind of navigate that if you're going to be supplying the meds for the patient, getting them through a different pharmacy. And then the uh, all the drugs. So uh, Riasigwat, I didn't mention, also has a REMS program along with the ERAs. So in order to dispense those as a hospital pharmacy, you have to be an enrolled REMS approved hospital pharmacy. So there's some uh, policies and procedures that need to be developed in order to, to do that as well. And then what what's the role of, you know, maybe temporary pulmonary vasodilators, i.e. inhaled epoprosinol, inhaled nitric oxide that we may more commonly be used to seeing in, you know, severe ARDS. Is there any role for those temporary use for inpatient uh, hospitalized pulmonary arterial hypertension patients? Yes, there definitely is. I think there's kind of two scenarios that I think of. One is your patient that's new, a new diagnosis of PAH, and they're coming in with obstructive shock, and they're either, some places are able to administer these agents through high flow nasal cannula. Um, a lot of places are able to do them through the, a BiPAP mask. And then mechanical ventilation is the most well-described use with these drugs. But if you have a new patient that's in obstructive shot requiring vasopressors, that might be a good time to use one of these drugs. The parenteral IV epoprosinol and traprosinol, they, they are selective for the pulmonary vasculature, but they also have some SVR reduction effects. So they, you might have a scenario where your patient's requiring significant vasopressors and you can't really risk uh, starting a drug that might further deteriorate their, their uh, SVR. So that's a great scenario for using either inhaled nitric oxide or inhaled epoprosinol, really to bridge them through that acute obstructive shock along with your vasopressor inotrope and fluid management strategies to a state where they're more stable, weaning off vasopressors, and then you can start a parenteral drug to wean them off the inhaled onto the parenteral option. And then the other option is your known TAH patient on some of these pharmacotherapies, and they get critically ill. It could be sepsis, you know, any any condition that brings them to the ICU, or just fluid overload. They get intubated. Um, when a patient's intubated, we'll kind of talk about this in a bit, but it's not an ideal scenario for a patient with pulmonary hypertension. And sometimes you can't administer these drugs because your institution cannot crush them. So sometimes you can use the inhaled options as a bridge to support a patient through the critical illness while they're, you know, requiring management for their underlying, you know, condition that's bringing them to the ICU. So it could be an item that is an add-on if your patient is in septic shock and you're having a hard time saying if this is sepsis or obstructive shock or a combination of both, they can be added on in those scenarios temporarily uh, to get the patient through that acute episode. And that's kind of a perfect lead in into kind of our management of the critically ill pulmonary hypertension patient. And so kind of starting off, describe to us the classic presentation of someone who comes in with decompensated pulmonary hypertension. When a patient presents with, that has pulmonary arterial hypertension in the emergency room or ICU, I kind of think of them in, you know, three kind of scenarios. One is they're here for some illness whether it's trauma or sepsis, that's unrelated to the pulmonary hypertension, we have to manage them through that condition. And then the disease state-specific things, 
is the patient's on a parenteral prostacyclin at home and they're coming in for a complication, whether it's a line infection, their line isn't working, they ran out of drug, their pump stopped working. That kind of is a different scenario in my mind. And then the third is it's a new diagnosis with obstructive shock or it's a patient coming in with with volume management and obstructive shock that has an existing history of TH. And really the that last category I think is where you kind of want to understand what the patients present with. And it's one of the challenges with diagnosing these conditions is the symptoms are often nonspecific. So it's similar to other conditions, shortness of breath, uh, inability to tolerate activities, uh, fluid accumulation and weight gain. I think a unique thing to the PAH population is they, the fluid that they accumulate accumulates in different positions relative to the heart failure population where they get pulmonary edema. This population doesn't really get pulmonary edema, but where they get fluid accumulation is the liver, so they can get hepatic congestion. So it's not uncommon if you have someone in obstructive shock to present with a pretty significant transaminitis and liver injury. You can see that happen. And the other scenario is just diffuse anasarcus. So their bowels are extremely edematous and they're reporting early satiety. So they eat or they can't eat because they always feel like they're full. Uh, And then just the other peripheral, you know, edema, JVD elevations, extremity edema. Um, Those are going to be your kind of classic symptoms for your pH population. Can they present differently than that the classic kind of RV failure with the with presenting with acute volume overload, or is your presentation kind of almost exclusively the way these patients will present? I think you're going to see a lot of times they're they're presenting how I kind of described. You know, you might have there's other things that you can hear murmurs on the right side of the heart, um, but I think the classic thing is. Volume overload without pulmonary edema is going to be kind of the hallmark for this population that sets them apart from like your heart failure population in terms of populations that present to you that are volume overloaded. And then you can have portal pulmonary hypertension. So I guess patients with end-stage liver disease that have ascites, these populations typically don't have ascites, but it's diffuse bowel edema, not, not encompassing the peritoneal space. Thinking about these patients, what are our treatment or hemodynamic goals? Example, right? In sepsis, we think of a MAP greater than 65, right? Or um, cardiogenic shock, a cardiac index, you know, greater than 2.2. What are some of those goals for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension? Yeah, I think you're going to have a lot of the same general management supportive care principles. The minimum you would want to MAP to to be is uh, you always, would always want that above 60, and ideally higher than that, MAP of 65. Um, ultimately, it's going to be an assessment of perfusion of organs, so mental status assessment. Uh, are the, is the patient making urine? Is their uh, liver being perfused? There's no elevations of LFTs. There's serum creatinine. So you're going to be looking at those holistic markers of perfusion. Um, also, feeling the extremities for if they're cool or warm. So kind of some of those same assessments that are done in the heart failure population. Um, And then, you know, really the challenge with this population when you compare the left and right ventricle is the way the ventricles compensate is completely different. So the ventricles have two ways to compensate to increase pressure, either for contracting more forcefully or stretching. The left ventricle has the ability 
to contract more forcefully and isn't good at stretching, whereas the right ventricle cannot really contract harder. Really, most of its contractility power come from the left ventricle contracting, but it can stretch. So the RV can stretch, and that uh, sets up this whole cascade that I kind of talked about, your CVP being very elevated, and that contributing to just high high pressures faced by all the abdominal organs. Why is fluid so detrimental in these patients? Why, if we, if you give them a 500 ml bolus, might you get a look when, when you think typically, right, if it's under a liter, it's probably okay when we're thinking other disease states. Why is it such a problem in these patients, especially when they come in with that RV failure? Yeah, I think you have to be very cautious with fluids and kind of going back to that scheme, even if it's a patient in sepsis, you still have to be do a very judicious fluid assessment in the patient to make sure this probably isn't the population that you would give a 30 ml per kilo bolus of fluids, um, but like you said, a 250 or 500 cc bolus to assess response. And then one of the things, you know, practicing at a pulmonary hypertension center that we often do is we pull up their most recent right heart cath or their most recent transthoracic echo and look at what the right atrial pressure was at that time. If it's a recent one, that can be very helpful to determine like what the patient's fluid status might be or what their right atrial pressure is. Um, so this is a population you'd want to get a central axis to measure central venous pressure, not for fluid responsiveness, but to assess their right atrial pressure as a measure of the pressure faced by the right side of the heart. So you can compare that number you get acutely to what they chronically are at. So if someone has a seat, uh, right atrial pressure on a right heart cath three months ago that's 25, and they're presenting and their CVP is 20, they might actually need a little bit of fluid. Whereas if you have a, a CVP three months ago that's or right atrial pressure that's 25 and there's is 30, that's probably a patient you, you want to avoid giving fluids at first and probably try to start diuresing and augmenting uh, perfusion of the kidneys. Is there, because it sounds like there might, like, based on some of the discussion we've had, that there might honestly be three things you might do, whether it's fluid, diuresis, maybe pressors. Is there a general first step in management, or is it all going to be kind of patient-specific with what's going on when we're thinking about the care of these patients? Yeah, I think you want to get a global assessment of how organs are being perfused. So kind of look, doing that physical assessment, looking at those parameters for volume, signs of out, overload, the patient's weight, looking at urine output and, and all of your uh, serum creatinine LFTs to assess perfusion. Um, you're going to be assessing uh, CVP and BNP levels to assess for volume overload state. And I think once you get that information, it's going to help guide you know what pathway you're going to be going down. Um, and it's going to be unique. If there's volume overload, you're always going to need to have fluid removed. So you'll be using loop diuretics and maybe some adjuncts. Um, then the the part that becomes more specific is if the patient's not perfusing, then you need to make an assessment. Um, is it because the patient has a low cardiac output, or is it because their MAP is too low? So you know, we you can often what's done is starting a, a, a vasopressor and then getting your MAP to go. And if they're not, you're not seeing an improvement in diuresis or organ perfusion, then adding an inotrope to help facilitate right ventricular function and inotropic activity. And there's a lot that 
that goes into there um, because your your inotropes are melanone and dobutamine. Both of those drugs are are felt to have some pulmonary vascular resistance reducing effects, and they also provide some inotropic activity for the right side of the heart. So those are all options. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is an echo and a transthoracic echo in that period is also extremely valuable. Um, and there's going to be certain things the team is going to be looking for to make an assessment. Is this, um, you know, all being driven by the obstructive shock or is this something else? And when they do that bedside ultrasound of the heart, there's a few things that they're looking for. One is uh, the, the common finding is a D-shaped left ventricle. So normally your ventricle, left ventricle is you know, circular when you look at it in echo because it has a very high pressure relative to the right ventricle. But in this patient population, the RV pressures are so high that it actually pushes the septum into the left heart and then you get a D-shaped left ventricle. So if you see that finding as well, it is also very suggestive that there's a volume overload to say that you're gonna need diuresis and you wanna be very cautious if you're gonna be giving your patient fluids. So I think that helps drive decisions is getting that assessment of what the heart looks like. Um, and then you're also able to estimate right atrial pressure with that transthoracic echo. And that echo, of course, will will help knowing whether, you know, a vasopressor or inotrope, for example, might be might be preferred to add on. And you mentioned some of them um, can have negative effects on some of those hemodynamic parameters that we are watching in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Is there a preferred agent or maybe more importantly, ones that we want to try to avoid in these patients or do they all have some of those effects and we just need to monitor and know that that's a possibility? Yeah, I think most PA physicians and what the European Society of Cardiology guidelines recommend in their ICU section is, is using norepinephrine and really Norepinephrine is preferred because of the SOAP2 trial showing reduced arrhythmia. So uh, norepinephrine is, uh, most people feel, it's not driven by a randomized trial in this population. It's from the previous literature showing reduced arrhythmias. Is norepinephrine is going to be your first-line vasopressor. And when you look at all the vasopressors, they have varying effects on the pulmonary vasculature. So norepinephrine is thought to be relatively neutral in pulmonary vascular resistance. So it's a vasopressor that doesn't increase PVR, which then would make your right ventricle function worse because you're increasing RV afterload. At relatively low to mid-level doses, no one has defined what that is. I typically start to think of that once we're getting a norepinephrine infusion of 40 mics per minute. Higher than that, if the patient continues to decompensate, I start to ask myself, you know, is this an effect of the vasopressor drug I'm giving? or worsening the underlying condition. Uh, and then, you know, if I am getting to escalating doses of norepinephrine, I like adding vasopressin on early. So vasopressin is going to be a pure SVR reducer, and it's at physiologic sepsis dose. It's neutral at the PVR. So it, it should, it's a drug that shouldn't increase PVR, and it should be able to help augment perfusion if, if that's what's the, the, you know, the driving problem. Um, outside of that, I would avoid dopamine because of the arrhythmias. Arrhythmias are lethal in this population. It's something that you really want to try to avoid the best you can by producing arrhythmogenic drugs. When a patient flips into an atrial arrhythmia with pulmonary arterial hypertension, they lose their right atrial kick. 
that's 10% of your cardiac output. That can be the difference between a relatively stable patient and a decompensating coding patient. So you want to be very careful about using any drug that has the propensity to cause arrhythmias. Um, the only drug I, other drug vasopressor-wise I would avoid is uh, phenylephrine. This is going to be a drug that will increase PVR. It won't augment your right ventricle because it's an isolated alpha agonist. So it's really a drug that shouldn't be used in, in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and then some physicians like using low-dose epinephrine. They feel it has you know, some ionotropic effect on the right ventricle, but there's no you know, data that necessarily support that. That's just practice patterns that you might see. Um, so norepinephrine is most would consider the first-line option, and then early addition of vasopressin if you're getting to escalating doses of norepinephrine are, is probably what most individuals uh, would use as their practice. And then for ionotropes, really the decision to use the ionotrope, it could be done one of two ways. One, you've started a vasopressor, your patient's at your MAP goal, not at your MAP goal, and then you're not getting the, the urine output that you need, so there's concern that the cardiac output or index is reduced, that'd be a time you could add on either dobutamine or milrinone. Once again, there's no head-to-head -head comparisons of this, those agents in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, it is felt that both will augment the right ventricle by adding some inotropic activity, and then both will reduce PVR. Um, so really then it becomes a, a matter of, in, we just had the uh, Doremi trial showing, at least in advanced heart failure or cardiogenic shock, no difference in outcomes between those two drugs. Um, to me, it becomes a matter of organ dysfunction. I like using dobutamine if the patient has uh, acute kidney injury. Um, and if they don't have that for whatever reason, either of those options is, is reasonable to me. Um, but one other thing that we commonly do in this population is because you'll have that central line to assess CVP is you can assess the cardiac output using fixed calculations. So knowing the patient's age, heart rate, hemoglobin, if you get an ABG and a, a central venous gas at the same time, you can calculate what the patient's cardiac output and index is with, with that parameter. So that's something we uh, use in, in some of the populations are trying to get a better grasp on what those hemodynamics are. Uh, without putting an invasive line in. And then the last line is if what you're doing is not working or it's unclear, uh, putting in a Swan-Gans catheter. Usually that's done typically, though, in patients that have multifactorial shocks with the patient with obstructive and, and uh, septic shock ongoing at the same time, just to reduce line complications. One additional option that there's not really strong evidence to support doing at this point, but it, it's kind of been described in the advanced heart failure population that kind of what was looked at is patients seem to have less diuretic response once your systolic blood pressure dropped or they had hypotensive episodes. And there is a principle called renal perfusion pressure. So a lot of times when we think of uh, Perfusion pressure, we're thinking of cerebral perfusion pressure. It's the same type of principle, but to calculate renal perfusion pressure, it's MAP minus your CVP. So the kidneys like a renal perfusion pressure of 60 or higher. So if your patient has a CVP of 30 and their MAP is 65, their renal perfusion pressure is 35. So 
if a patient doesn't respond to diuresis despite a MAP goal, despite what we think is a good cardiac index, sometimes we'll augment the MAP goal and increase it based on what their CVP is. So if their CVP is 20, we might increase their MAP goal to 70 or 75 short term to see if we have an improvement in diuretic response once you hit a cerebral perfusion pressure of 60 for your patient-specific hemodynamic variables. And we've done that a handful of times, and anecdotally, it seems to have worked well. I think one of the things you just want to be mindful is anytime you're giving patients higher vasopressor doses to target a higher MAP, this has been shown you increase the rate of arrhythmias. So it's kind of something that should be done in a very cautious, time-sensitive manner if they don't reach that goal or the clinical response, you revert back to your standard goal. If they're not, if they're failing to meet uh, diuresis goals based on an uh, uh, aggressive diuretic dose with adjuncts in your MAP goal and your cardiac index output, it's something also to consider before starting, um, you know, fluid removal with an extracorporeal device. What an incredible overview. Thinking about some of our hemodynamics, especially in these critically ill patients, I think this is the kind of the perfect lead-in to talk about from a medication safety perspective. And maybe we, we don't even have to focus on that. We can just say overall, let's toot our own horn here for a minute. How important is the role of a pharmacist in these patients? How crucial are they to their to the pH treatment team? I think, you know, when you look at the Pulmonary Hypertension Association, one of the recognized members on that team is the pharmacy team. And there, you know, the things we've talked about specifically, the high alert medicines, the uh, preparation and dispensing of the parenteral prostacycline drugs, the REMS assessment and, and ability to dispense those things. Just from a logistics standpoint, there's so much specialization just to provide the drugs to a patient in the hospital setting that it really has to have a, a pharmacy team member as a part of that PH team to coordinate all the policies and procedures that go just to providing safe care and not causing harm from medicine errors. So I think that's one piece. And the other piece is all of the clinical things, you know, working with your team. Um, a lot of the scenarios that come up in the ICU are things that aren't, you know, in the guidelines of the randomized trial. You have a patient that's on oral triprosinol and they get intubated. Oral triprosinol cannot be crushed. They're like, Zach, we want, can you help us come up with a, a conversion to their I, an IV triprosinol dose? So things like that come up. Um, there's also, we had a patient admitted overnight that's on a new pump for subcutaneous therapy. This is our first patient we've had in our hospital. So I was just talking with the nurse on navigating what that might look like. Um, and then there's other scenarios like assisting with uh, other titration. Sometimes we'll start a patient that's obstructive shock, new pH on epoprostinol or truprostinol. And once they're stabilized, we find out that they're not a candidate for parenteral therapy. So switching them to an oral therapy, either oral truprostinol or oral selexapeg. So there's a lot of these scenarios that come up. The other common one is if you're an institution that uses a lot of subcutaneous truprostinol, your patient comes in with a shock state. If the patient's really absorbing from that subcutaneous site of administration, they need to be converted to an intravenous administration temporarily. So there's just a hand, there's so many scenarios where, you know, having a pharmacist as a member of the team can help navigate through some of these complex scenarios as a team, I think is extremely warranted. And then any, it's like critical care 
just as a team. Anytime you can have a specialized member of a team that owns that part of the patient's care, it allows each discipline to practice at the highest level because they can really focus on, you know, the things that only a physician can do or the things that only a nurse can do. Um, so I think there's just that team aspect to the management of a, this population as well. Let's let's dive in quickly into something you said, and that's patients on home pumps. And I feel like when when patients come in on their home uh, prostacycline, you know, whether it's an IV or sub-Q infusion, everyone, at least where I've been, they kind of throw their hands up, where's the pharmacist, they'll take care of it. So what are some tips and tricks to ensure safe continuation of their medication? Because from firsthand experience, there are things that have to get done to make sure that you have a safe transition from that outpatient treatment to our inpatient treatment. Yeah, so the first things I talk to patients about is I first ask them, is their pump working? Is the drug infusing or are they having any problems with their line? And when was the last time they changed their cassette? And then when are they expecting to change it again? So that quickly triages any of those uh, things I mentioned earlier, if it's a prostacycline complication related item. And if it is one of those things, if it's a line problem, the, both parenteral drugs can be infused through a peripheral line. So you just have a nurse insert a peripheral line and infuse it peripherally, temporarily. If it's a pump problem, patients are educated to have their backup pumps with them at all times. So hopefully you're in a scenario you can swap out to the patient's backup pump. Um, the other thing I ask patients is if they prepare their drug at home. Most do or know how to. I walk through if they know what their dose, dosing weight is, their infusion rate, and what the concentration is. Um, sometimes patients will know some of those items. I also ask them what specialty pharmacy they get their drug from. Uh, the parental drugs are only dispensed by one of two specialty pharmacies, so it's either going to be a Credo or CVS Caremark. So then you can call and confirm the dosing information. Then I always, if I were practicing at an institution where I didn't have a pH team, um, I would ask who's your pH physician because that person should be contacted as well to help coordinate the care. So once I talk with the patient and troubleshoot those quick, immediate, concerning items and everything's okay, then I do essentially a meta history on the prostacycline therapy. I call their specialty pharmacy, confirm the dosing information. Both those specialty pharmacies have 24-hour or seven day per week services that you can always talk to someone to confirm dosing information at all hours of the day on holidays, weekends. So that's a good resource to know. Um, so those are some of the things I do immediately. And then the the next piece is really as an organization, are what what your team feels is the best thing to do, whether it's continue the patients on their home ambulatory pumps during the hospital stay or switch it to your smart pump infusion. Uh, from a med safety perspective, both have med safety concerns and cause errors by doing each ways. One, because no one in your hospital knows how to use the ambulatory infusion pump, and your patient becomes altered and can no longer operate their pump, and then bad things can happen in that scenario. And if you're switching to the hospital smart pump, you often have to change some factors within their prescription, and then that can lead to errors, and then there's error opportunities when you're switching between the two concentrations of drug for temporarily bolusing a patient if the drug they're using at home is either more concentrated or less concentrated. So both have med safety concerns, but as an organization, you, you as a team want to decide which one of these approaches do we want to take. So 
you kind of have that set from the start. Um, and neither has been compared head to head, so no one knows, you know, which of those two is the, is the best option. But just making a decision as a team. And I think the other thing is having your physician colleagues reach out to that pH specialist. That's a recommendation, the guidelines to coordinate the care of this population. So it could be assisting with the management if your physician teams are unfamiliar managing them, or expediting a transfer early on. Like if your hospital doesn't have the drugs. There might be a scenario where you need to transfer, not because your team can't take care of them, but you don't physically have the drugs in-house to provide the patient. And that is a couple things to, to reiterate on the home pump usage. You know, these patients who are on home uh, parenteral prostacyclins, they're most, unless it's a, they're very new doing it, they, they know those questions. They're prepared for them. They get told in clinic, Hey, if you come in, they're going to ask you these things. And, and so, um, that tends to be a, there's maybe some people listening, like, my gosh, people came and told me their heart failure meds. They're going to remember like, you know, all when they last reconstituted it. But I think this is a little different scenario there. And you're doing that for every patient because, you know, say you put the weight in wrong, right. Then you have that risk of hypotension when they're there for press. So it's, you know, the, the minor things can add up here and, and paying attention to the details is really, really important. So I like that you highlighted it because that's one that you might not see a true guideline recommendation about, but following that general process always um, is really good. Like if you don't, having a checklist to do it is even helpful because I promise you can get training for it, but unless you're somebody like Zach or you work in a unit, right, it's never going to come at a convenient time. It's going to come when you're least prepared for. So have that checklist so you don't have to rely on your muscle memory and you can go bam, 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 make sure you get all that in a, in a safe way. So I love that highlight, Zach. That's awesome. I think that's probably one of the most important pieces of the, of the whole episode that we highlighted. Now, kind of bringing into that, we just talked a whole thing from an overview of pulmonary hypertension, the critically ill patient, the role of the pharmacist. What would, if you had to, to hi- re-highlight a couple take-home points for the listeners here, what would those be in, in the care of the critically ill pulmonary arterial hypertension patient? I think the first thing is really, you know, first doing no harm. And it's really what we just kind of talked about is one making sure you're you're doing your due diligence to make sure these therapies are provided in a safe fashion we haven't mentioned that med errors with the parenteral prostaglins have led in patient harm and death so med errors with these drugs are very serious so the first thing you want to do is make sure you're not causing harm by medication errors and and having a checklist is a is a great way to prevent those things from happening um, that quickly is going to help triage if the patient is going to come to your center or get transferred elsewhere, just from a logistics standpoint and, and med availability standpoint. Um, I think some of the other things is key takeaways is, as a ICU pharmacist is the diagnosis of pH has to come with a right heart cath. So it cannot be diagnosed on the transthoracic echo if the systolic pulmonary arterial pressure is high. So, you know, sometimes you might need to intervene to say, well, we shouldn't probably start sildenafil because we haven't gone through this pathway to initiate this drug appropriately by the preferred diagnostic pathway. Um, That's another thing that I have seen. And I think the fluid management aspect is is very important as well, really utilizing the CVP in this population. And if you have historical values to compare it to, 
and then kind of walking through a process of if there's a uh, perfusion problem, if it's really related to the MAP not being high enough, or if there's cardiac output or index uh, not being at, at your target goals. Um, and then any drug that's, we haven't talked about this, but any, any drug that's initiated in the hospital, like we've mentioned, all these drugs are specialty drugs. They all come from specialty pharmacies. They all need prior authorization. Several have REMS programs associated with them. So if you are initiating these drugs, it should be one, done in conjunction with a pH a specializing physician. And then two, once the patient's at a state, it's like they're likely going to make it out of the ICU and go home, you should start the process for access to those therapies early so you don't have a patient that's now survived their ICU stay and on the floor, and now they have to wait a week for all these things to happen. So uh, med access is a big piece once you get them through that acute episode that really should start, I start that process as soon as they're out of that obstructive shock state and they're stable. I start that process working with the pH team. Well, Zach, thank you so much. What a what an awesome overview of something that could probably be a 10-hour episode uh, in and of itself. Reach out to Zach. Uh, let him know what an awesome job at ZRSmith16. Uh, Zach, appreciate all your time, expertise, and, and knowledge coming on and sharing that with us. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks again to Zach Smith. Wow, what a wealth of knowledge on a very complicated topic. Uh, reach out to him on Twitter at ZRSmith16. And I always like to know what you think for me as well, at Pharmacy2Dose, T-O-D-O-S, any of the socials you're on, you will see me there. Uh, Pharmacy2Dose at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email message. And of course, the reference list, right, with those guidelines, review articles, and the specific clinical trials we talked about, it's in that episode description as well as the website Pharmacy2Dose.com. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy2Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.